welcome to the Nursing Standard podcast. I'm Flavia Munn, editor of Nursing Standard, and I'm here to introduce our latest episode, which is about an award-winning project to support young people who are affected by knife crime. Your stance was set up by emergency nurse Anna Waddington and teaches young people about what to do when someone is stabbed, such as basic life support and CPR sessions. In 2020, Anna was named RCM Nurse of the Year for her work in tackling the knife crime epidemic in London. And in this episode, she talks to senior news reporter Kimberly Hackett about how she engages young people on the streets, what she learns from them, and also how she's aiming to spread her project nationwide. Anna's work is truly inspirational, and she's also inspiring young people from these backgrounds to enter the NHS. So let's take a listen now. Hi Anna, thank you for joining us on the Nursing Standard podcast. I know that you are very busy at the moment, so I really appreciate you sitting down with me. Although, for the purpose of listeners, this is not face-to-face, this is online, we're not breaking lockdown rules. Some of our listeners might not know about the Your Stance organisation. Can you explain what it is? Yeah, first of all, just want to say thank you so much for inviting me to chat. I'm really grateful. So Your Stance is a small community interest company that was set up by myself to almost two years ago now, out of real sense of frustration in seeing so many young people coming to my emergency department with significant injuries that could have been reduced if those that were on the, in the scene before the first responders uh, knew what to do to help those young people. You know, simple skills like putting pressure on a, on a bleed or starting CPR or calling an ambulance. Um, and so I really thought that there would be an opportunity there to bring those skills to young people out in our communities by bringing in the healthcare professionals who treated these young people in emergency departments and other places in hospitals and going out into non-traditional areas to teach basic life support and hemorrhage control. And so that's where the idea sort of started. And really what it's become is a group, quite a large group, about 200 volunteers in our database that go out and teach young people who are at high risk of serious youth violence. So not necessarily would have been involved in any gang affiliated activity, but are at risk of possibly even being involved or witnessing serious youth violence um, and empowering those young people with these basic skills. That's essentially what your stance is. We're predominantly in northeast London, but we're looking to expand to the rest of London as we're seeing that the skills are really valuable and it's both beneficial to the young people that we teach and to the healthcare professionals who go out and volunteer. And how do you reach those young people? Do you go into schools or youth groups? It's a variation. So the whole project started because I went to Felton Young Offending Institute where young people are there until the age of 18 who have committed serious crimes. And I went there and started teaching them basic life support and hemorrhage control. So that's where the idea sort of started, the springboard, I suppose you could say. And then what we did was we realised that there was a real appetite through these young people who were in high-risk areas, such as prisons and pupil referral units or alternative provisions. So that's where we started. But now we kind of teach everywhere except for mainstream schools. We teach in pupil referral units, alternative provisions, out on the streets, which is our favourite programme, in high-risk areas. So we go in in collaboration with the local councils and reach young people in their communities. So we go and engage them with youth workers. Um, But we also teach still in prisons and in the hospitals. So we'll go to patients who have 
sparked an interest in this particular skill or, you know, with other parts of the hospital who have, for example, young carers, they've got access to the young carers who won't necessarily have been reached through other provisions or other teaching venues. And you said that you don't go into mainstream schools. Why is that? Well, there's lots of reasons for it. We wanted to really reach the most high at risk who we felt were most vulnerable and hadn't been engaged as much with these skills. Because what we found is in teaching this skill, it's an opportunity to empower young people who would otherwise not feel empowered in their knowledge. And so we went out and because at the time we were only a really, really small organisation, we tried to to reach those most at risk. So that would be the prisons and the uh, alternative provisions. And we've just found that that seems to be our niche. It seems to be what we're good at, engaging young people who aren't interested in being engaged. And so we've just stuck to it because it's the bit that we like the most. And also it, it means that we're bringing those individuals, those healthcare professionals who are used to looking after or treating patients who aren't interested in being talked to. And so it just seems to really work well, that combination. What type of other healthcare professionals are involved? Are they nurses, doctors, paramedics? We have a real mixture. So it started off just being myself, a nurse, another nurse and a doctor, um, but it's really expanded and we have a real variety of people. So we have paramedics, we have um, what are called emergency ambulance crew members. So they're the individuals who aren't necessarily mentioned when you talk about ambulances, but really key professionals and know a lot of stuff. And then we've had, you know, your trauma surgeons through to your healthcare, uh, healthcare assistants. And we've even had some metropolitan police because at the end of the day, we all learn the same skills. It's just how we teach it and what we've seen. And I think that's why we like to have such a variety of volunteers. And has that skill mix changed the way you work when you're back in a hospital? Absolutely. Uh, what, what it's done for me personally, obviously, I can only speak for myself, mm. but it's really informed other people's perspective of how things are happening out on, for example, pre-hospitally and how it is for them when they see a young person who's been injured seriously, such as with a stab wound or with a gunshot wound and what they do and the, the struggles that they have to confront similarly with us. And I think what it does for me is, especially when I'm treating a young person who's come in with a serious injury, is that a lot of them can come up with quite an aggressive attitude, which is, you know, is guided by the adrenaline and the fear and the mistrust. And I have a few things that I can talk to them about, like, you know, for example, how was it when the ambulance arrived? What was it, you know, and talk to them about how the ambulance feel when they see young people in those situations, because I've chatted to a lot of paramedics in these sessions about it. And you spoke about the kind of anger that a lot of the young people feel and, and the distrust that you that you've witnessed. Can you expand on that a bit more? Why do you think there is that distrust? Because I would say, because you're a nurse, you would be trusted. We know that nurses are the most trusted profession. But I guess with this young group of people, there seems to be a distrust against all professionals. You know, how, how do you handle that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I don't want to speak for all young people because I can't. Mm. But from from the sessions that I've done and speaking to, to especially the young people who are at Felton Prison who have been... Uh, some of them obviously don't want to speak for all of them some of them have been injured seriously and have gone to major trauma centers and I would say that their trust is totally broken down and I wouldn't say that they trust nurses or doctors or police because in some 
someone along the line has broken that trust. And it's because maybe they don't really understand processes. And I think that's why it's so important for us to go in and teach them these skills, because we can talk to them about processes and break those sort of myth bust a little bit. For example, one young person said to me that he wouldn't come to A&E, never, not even if he had a serious injury, because he knew that we would just tell the police on him and then he'd get nicked. And I tried to explain to him that, you know, it's all about risk assessment and it's all about safety. And unfortunately, we do have to tell the police when there's been a stabbing. But that's because we need to be our role as healthcare professionals is a duty of care. And we have to care for that individual, but also we have to care for society. Mm. And so we need them to understand that, unfortunately, we do need to let them know that someone has been seriously injured because there's a risk of someone else being injured or, you know, their family being injured. And but also at the same time, it's getting them to understand the processes. So why does an ambulance need to call the police when there's a stabbing and, you know, getting them to, to recognize that, unfortunately, they probably would be in the same situation if they were in our roles. But the other thing is, uh, getting them to to really break down those ideas or those concepts that they've sort of built up in their mind of what is actually happening because they're really really mistrusting they're watching things and they're making their own judgments but actually they could just ask us and mm-hmm. we can explain it to them it kind of leads me on to my next point i would think if i saw someone who had been stabbed or seriously injured my immediate reaction would be to try and stop the flow of the blood. So I'm trying to understand is, why do does it seem that many young people don't know that? You know, I've not had a, a healthcare training background. I guess I'm just going off what I've seen on TV and things. And how has you teaching that built the trust between you and the young people? Oh, there's a lot of questions. Yes, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll break it down. We'll break it down. How about... Um, yeah, why, why, what, yeah, why, why have the young people, why, why do they not know something that we see on TV, I guess? They do, they do know it. Okay. Um, and that's the thing is that I guess a lot of them do know it and, um, but it's about empowering them with that mm. knowledge. So a lot of the cases that we have seen of young people bleeding to death are because they get up and they walk away from the scene of the crime. Right, okay. Um, and and we can talk about why they do that, I think, for days. But one of the reasons, and this is directly from a young person, so I'm not generalizing here, but a young person said to me that the reasons why they do that is because they're scared, because their adrenaline you know, is making them run away from the scene because they're worried about the association of the crime. So someone who, I mean, I'm not a probation officer and I'm not an expert in prisons or anything like that, but from what the young people have explained to me that if you have been involved in a crime or have a criminal background just by the association of a crime you could go back to prison and so that's quite scary for a young person who's been seriously injured and the other thing is you know the potential of getting in trouble for snitching or um, even just the idea of it being spread across social media that you've been stabbed even if you're not involved in any criminal activity the shame in that or the the abuse that you can get online there's just so much it's really intricate Mm. and it's really complicated and so they will get up and walk and that will bleed them out even if they're putting pressure on the wound because obviously if you think about a car a car with an engine and the car's moving it's going to use its petrol so if it's got a leak it's just going to keep leaking it's the same principle and so there's that. 
I guess, and what it does by teaching them the skill of, okay, let's just talk about a situation and what you would do. All the young people say, oh yeah, we'd leave, we'd leave, we'd leave. And you're like, well, let's literally, let's break it down. Let's talk about it. And although it's a basic skill that we're teaching them, we're actually talking through things. And in a way with some of them, especially those who have been seriously injured, we're debriefing with them. And we're, you know, reflecting a little bit. And that's when the real gems come out, the conversations of how things actually happened for them. And, you know, I had a a story of a young person who was stabbed and he went and he asked for help and he went into a petrol station and they closed the doors on him and he was bleeding. And that's really that that to him is actually the the worst thing is the fact that that young person asked for help and they rejected him and he was really, really injured. That's when I say, like, it's just so complicated why they do certain things. I obviously can't generalize, but, mm. you know, why this opportunity to teach a skill is so important because it, it does let them speak about what's happening. And that's where the trust starts. So I say to them, look, this is how it feels for me when I see you in and you're so injured and I don't think you deserve it. And I don't care what you say, whether you're dirty or whatever, no one deserves this. And then, you know, it just opens the floor for these really, really amazing conversations that I've learned so much about and I hope they have too. It sounds like the teaching them to kind of stop the flow of the blood and it's opening up the the mental health side of things as well, that they can speak about their trauma and through that, they're beginning to trust you and the other healthcare professionals around you. So it's so much more than than that one tool, yeah. I guess, and it's, that's really yeah. important. The volunteers are also, you know, as healthcare professionals, we're trained in safeguarding, we're trained in risk assessing, we're trained in, in you know, signposting to the right services. And so one of the things that we do in our sessions is if we do find that someone is particularly triggered by something, obviously we, we do a trigger warning at the beginning and we have had individuals say, look, I can't stay. And that's fine. But then one of our volunteers will go out with them and chat to them and, and okay. maybe signpost them to a mental health service mm. or other youth services that we think are appropriate. We have a huge list of them. And so if anyone does know of a youth service that they'd like us to uh, signpost, please do let us know. Okay, yeah, because that's really important. No, we're talking very much about the physical yeah. here, but actually the the physical and the mental, they go they go hand in hand. And Absolutely. I guess something like your stance highlights that. And have you found that there are issues beyond stabbing, shall we say, such as home life uh, and, and difficulties with families and, and things like that? And is that something that's come up in these sessions? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you speak, when you try and get to the real detail of why young people are in those situations. So we're not a probing organisation and we're not an organisation that goes and saying, you should do this, you should do that, you're not allowed to carry a knife. We're not like that. We go in with teaching a basic skill and that just, like you said earlier, opens up the floor for conversation. And and sometimes the young people have really, really good probing questions like, well, it's all right for you because, you know, you're a white girl or it's right for you, you're you obviously are privileged and these they're right. These are the conversations that we have to be having. And why is it that a young person that isn't in a privileged situation doesn't get to have the education that I had, you know? And so we have those conversations and actually once at Pentonville prison, when the whole Brexit fiasco was happening, basically the whole session was about why we were voting for this situation. So those things do definitely come up. And a lot of the young people that we speak to in certain certain situations, you know, can be like things like young carers and have a responsibility. And one of the young people I was teaching recently was saying to me that, you know, he needs to make money. 
he needs to. And it's all well and good that I say to him, oh, you know, you can get into healthcare, like it's fine. He said, but I have to pay for the, the degree. I haven't got that kind of money. And then I haven't got my GCSEs, so how am I supposed to go into this? And he's he's right. I, I'm still trying to find the best way in. And, you know, I think we're getting there. Like, we're starting to have conversations with London's ambulance and other services like that, you know. But if you're a young person who has serious bills to pay mm. and some of them have debts, then it's really not very easy for us to just argue that they can go and become a nurse because now they have to pay for it, you know? Yeah, yeah, I understand. And now you mentioned the fact that you're a white woman. The listeners won't know unless they've seen your picture. And given that you're predominantly, but you are based in London, your stance, and you know, sadly, the majority of knife crimes, victims and suspects are from ethnic minorities, particularly from the black community. We know that there, that society has kind of created sometimes a barrier between black people and white people, especially white people in authority and black people who, who aren't. How have you overcome those boundaries and as, as a white woman to get young people to trust you? I wouldn't say I've overcome any boundaries. <laughs> um, I'm fully aware of the fact that I'm a white woman and, you know, I have a privileged background and I have an education, but I'm trying to, as much as I can, break down those walls and engage young people and try and encourage people from all sorts of backgrounds and skills to come and support us so that we can represent everyone. But more importantly, I think how do I say this? The way that your stance works is that we go in to teach young people that are high risk in uh, serious youth violence with the aim and the hope of empowering a new generation of NHS from a non-traditional backgrounds. And I am working really hard to find the way in for a lot of the young people that wouldn't have otherwise ever even considered the option to come, come into the NHS. And I think that's really important. I think we're nowhere near a perfect society when it comes to how young people who are not white can enter the NHS, especially when they've had really difficult backgrounds. But I'm hoping that this is a way in and we can, you know, create a new skill force. And have any young people gone into the NHS so far? From Yes. Oh, really? <laughs> wow. Well, I mean... Completely not. I don't know completely, but I do know that one young person has um, started the process of becoming a paramedic. And I do know that there have been a few young people who have graduated from our programme and is now working as volunteers for one of the hospitals. And it's looking really likely that as a result of that programme, that apprenticeship programme that they've entered, they'll be able to, you know, become employees of the NHS and hopefully be that be just an entrance into whatever career they want to fulfil. And they're all from, you know, non-traditional NHS backgrounds, I would say. And on top of it, have some of them have criminal backgrounds. So I think that's really really important and the other thing is remember we're introducing healthcare professionals who normally wouldn't have engaged with young people in this sort of setting and same thing we're engaging young people with healthcare professionals in a different setting that they normally wouldn't have engaged with even me like you're learning about careers in NHS that I didn't even know existed like the EECS that is a whole career that I don't even know about what's that sorry (laughs) 
Sorry, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't call them eeks. It's just a term that we use for pre-hospitally, but it's the emergency ambulance crew members. Oh, right. <laughs> they don't have the registration, so that means that you don't necessarily need to have your A-levels, which opens so many doors, because then you can do your top-ups later on. And I think the LAS is really good at supporting you with that. So if you wanted to get into pre-hospital, the eek role is way in. And you learn so much. And, you know, I wouldn't have known about it had they not come and volunteered at one of our sessions or becoming a porter temporarily and then going in, you know, becoming a healthcare assistant and then just going that way. There's just so many different avenues that I wouldn't have known about had I not had certain volunteers come to our session. And I think the same goes for young people. Like, you know, when you're at that GCSE time where you're trying to figure out what you want to do, what you should do, what you should focus on, if you're really feeling unempowered and, and just, you know, let down by society and you speak to someone who actually has been through it already, it's quite empowering, I think. And with regards to the actual programmes that you run, roughly how long do they last for? We have a lot of different programs. So I'll start with the street one. So that one's an ad hoc program. So we go, we walk around for about three to four hours with youth workers targeting specific areas and we'll teach according to what the young people want to. So you walk around the areas. So do do you just like, (laughs) do you just kind of like go, oh, there's a group of young people. We need to go talk to them. How does it work? (laughs) That'd be terrible. of grown-ups approaching young people that would be so embarrassing no it's it's part of the outreach model that the councils already have so we as an organization believe in collaboration completely and that goes with young people as well and so we you know we go with the outreach teams so they already have specific areas that they want to target and they know the young people that they want to meet and sometimes they've even made like prior bookings and so like your stunts are coming do you want to meet us at the football pitch or do you want to miss, meet us at the basketball court? And... Okay. <laughs> so, so, Slightly formalised as well. <laughs> it is formalised. It is formalised. The last one that we did, obviously, the lockdown stopped everything. But the last one that we did, the the youth workers said, oh, yeah, we've got a group of young people going to meet us by this bus. And we were like, okay, this sounds interesting. There was about 12 of them. They just sort of appeared. They're like, hey, we're so excited. Let's do this. I was like, okay. And then they ran away to mosque because it was time for them to go to the mosque. So it was quite, you know, but it was perfect. It worked really well. So that's one of our projects, my favorite one, actually. And then The other one is obviously we do uh, two hour sessions in the prisons because that's how it works in terms of the the time that they can move around. So you can only they can only be in one place for a certain amount of time. So we have to do two hours and that's when we teach them everything. And that one's the one that really opens up the floor for conversation because we have the time and we can do simulations. And and then we've got the pupil referral ones, which is a six-month curriculum where we bring in various different services to teach them their perspective and teach them different skills that they can bring in. So we bring in London's Air Ambulance, London's Ambulance Service, ourselves, our violence reduction team come in as well. Um, and we have a young person come in and then, you know, the Metropolitan Police as well. What's it like when the police come on board? Because <laughs> I imagine that. <laughs> yeah, I'm just really intrigued. <laughs> What's it like? So, it's my favourite session, I think, because it really is incredible how we watch the trust build literally in front of your eyes. Because remember, everyone who comes and does a session with us actually wants to be there. So, none of it is compulsory 
even for the volunteers and obviously for the young people it's not compulsory we don't believe in compulsion because actually it doesn't work so the young people want to be there and when they find out that they're the police that they're not happy with me they tend to get very angry at me (laughs) do you tell Um, them at the beginning of the program or towards the end well we tell them at the beginning of the session that the police are here just because we don't know if they're going to come as in sometimes we can't promise that the police will always be there at the end of the program or not so it just depends on their availability so we don't want to let the young people down and that's all part of the trust building process you want to promise what you can promise and so when the police come in and they are actually available the young people aren't very happy with me and there's usually a real anger and we do a big q a at the beginning on purpose and I tell the young people to ask whatever they want. You know, they shouldn't stop themselves. And believe me, they don't. And the police are ready for it. They answer all the questions as honestly as they can. And like I said to you again, it's, it's about myth busting. Sometimes, you know, I don't know certain things about the police. And we've all had uh, perceptions of the way things are handled on the streets. And, you know, it can sometimes be quite shocking. Mm. But there's things that we don't know that they need to do or there's things that they get told that we don't know about and you know one of the questions that the young people asked was why are you tackling one person with six police officers like I find that just seems to be such excessive force and the police that were there said that that's how they're trained you know that each person has a limb on purpose so that they don't injure them and you know one person will hold the neck for example you know and we do that like when we're rolling someone on a bed we have a certain amount of people each person to an area of the body to protect that body of course yeah when you're saying that it makes perfect sense but i guess in that moment if you're one of those young people or you're witnessing that it's you just would you would think why why is that necessary but it's a classic case of as you said before it's discussion and explanation and then once you have that it really breaks down some barriers yeah and learning it's like i've learned so much from the young people i almost want one with me all the time (laughs) so i can just (laughs) that 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 kind of leads on to my next question so how has it changed the way you nurse because you work in the children's any yeah yeah. but we see under 18 yeah of course it's a bit old it's like young people children's a and e but not really i hate the term children's a and e because i don't think it represents you know, the young people that are actually having to attend our department. Like a 17-year-old um, or... Yeah, exactly. Or a 16-year-old yeah. who looks like a 25-year-old. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, how has it changed the way I nurse? I think everyone would argue that I'm a huge advocate for young people. Now, I'm incredibly passionate about thinking about the young person first and thinking about the vocabulary that we use when we're, when we're treating them or even when we're talking about them near mm. them or talking about them ever. Yeah. Because just the things that young people have said to me, that the breakdown of trust has come a lot of the times from a misunderstanding of what someone has said to them or from what they've seen, like picking up the phone and talking to social services next to them, you know, things yeah, like that. Of and, um, you'd think that this is really basic stuff, but we all do it because we're all shattered and exhausted and we don't think about the consequences. But to someone who doesn't understand what's going on or is really scared, that is going to possibly have long-term effects on them. And so I think that's changed. Also, just understanding the, the, the whole probation service, the system a little bit better. I'm not saying that I'm an expert, but, you know, I've tried to inform myself and inform myself on county lines and what that means to a young person, what that can look like, how we can safeguard them better. And 
yeah, simple things like association of a crime and what that can do to a young person's life long term. I didn't know anything about that before. You know, I, I didn't understand why a young person would want to run away from a, start, a scene of a crime, even if they had never been convicted of a crime or Snapchat, the impacts of what Snapchat can do to a young person. So that, well, because if it's recorded and put up online and yeah, okay. It's there forever yeah. and it defines them forever. And actually, you'll see it a lot. The young people will be looking at their Snapchat, looking for themselves. Where are they? Are they filmed? Is something wow. filmed? And Social media remember? has just, it, it plays a part. I didn't even think about yeah. that. It, oh, it plays a huge role in, in the mental health, well-being of these young people and the impact that it can have. And if you are involved in something, the risk that it can put to your life, knowing what hospital you're in, just all of that is this so it's so complicated and i guess we could do an entire podcast just about <laughs> young people but um i guess what it's just done is that it's just made me even more compassionate towards them and, and want to improve healthcare for these young people in all aspects and i think that we're nowhere near being a perfect service for various reasons but i think something that we need to be better at is being compassionate for this particular patient group because i think we have lost it a little bit and you know the pandemic hasn't helped because we've had to focus elsewhere but unfortunately young people are still coming with serious injuries and um, young people are still being injured out on the streets as we know from the news so we still need to care about them and how has your organization survived during the pandemic you know how have you been reaching out to young people even though you can't physically speak to them yeah, uh, we've been doing a virtual program, so we teach virtually. So unfortunately, the prisons, we haven't been able to enter a prison for over a year now. And mm. we're really upset about that, obviously, because I feel like the young people who are in there are so vulnerable and just have been a little bit abandoned. And I just don't know how to get in. Yeah, but we can't, you know, we can't enter um, because we can't put them at risk. But we are doing virtual sessions with youth, with youth hubs and with alternative provisions. So we've been doing it in Hackney and the rest of East London which has been really good and the young carers group have been really engaged and you know a lot of the young carers aren't able weren't able to leave their house during that big period of shielding because some of their family members are really high risk so they literally can't leave so actually to have a little chat with us is quite nice and we've spoken a lot about how the organisation has helped your like skills as a nurse and so on but what about the nurses around you who perhaps Aren't, they aren't volunteers. What have they learned through you or just by talking to you or the way you treat patients differently? I've seen a change in attitude. And obviously that's not just from me. You yeah. know, our hospital is really unique in that it's the only hospital in the country to have a violence reduction lead nurse. Wow, yeah, I didn't know but, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really great and we should be really proud of it. But also it means that we work really closely with him. Um, his name is Michael Carver. He's fantastic. But what I, I've seen a change in attitude, and I'm not saying that it's directly about your stance, but there's been a real focus on, you know, improving the, the, the care of these young people, not only because they deserve to have the best care, but also because it just helps us have a better working environment because 
the calmer the young person, the better it is for the nurse and the doctor. And so they just work hand in hand. And, you know, I've done a lot of teaching sessions, in-house teaching sessions in my A&E and also the, re- the rest of the hospital. So have a lot of the core volunteers. We've done workshops on how to treat young people that are high risk of violence um, and got the violence reduction team to help us in doing those things. But on top of that, I think it's just, you know, being there. And when there's a young person who has been injured, I get asked a lot of questions and I think that's good you know they'll come to me and they'll say oh do you think I'm missing something do I think do you think do you think I need to consider something else and I think the volunteers have also felt empowered in in trying to help people around them as well I'm gonna play devil's advocate now yeah of course because I know that there will be some people listening to this they'll say we need to be spending more time on prevention. This program, your stance, it's almost allowing knife crime to happen. That's what some people might say. You know, have you had that come your way before? And you know, what's your response to it? Yeah, I have had that question. I've also had people say that I'm teaching them where to where to injure themselves, where it's safe to be injured, and I I think the focus is wrong. I think we should be really focusing on the fact that we want young people to survive their injuries. And if we able help them survive those injuries, we might be able to engage them in violence reduction prevention programs. No one wants a young person to die. And actually, no young person wants to be in that situation. You're never going to speak to a young person and they say to you, actually, I really like the fact that I live in a really high risk environment. And, you know, the risk that the, the path, path that I have in life are that I will die or I deal drugs, you know. If a young person says that to you, that means that there's something seriously wrong in society and actually young people are saying those things to us. So I think the priority should be in helping them survive these injuries and then engaging them and providing really good and effective violence reduction programs in hospitals so that they can be re-engaged and and help and supported out in society. The other thing is a prevention program because we talk to them about injuries and we talk to them about high risk factors and but we also we help them get help you know we open doors for them and and if if uh, sometimes a young person will say to me like i do want some help i i don't know how to get out or i don't and i'm not saying everyone that we teach is high risk and is involved in gang affiliated activity but sometimes one of them might be and they might approach us and then we can engage them and get them supported by a violence reduction program that is local to them this is a way of safeguarding them in a different format i think someone used the terminology of you know how there used to be a program where we would train shopkeepers and top shop on how to how to recognize sexual trafficking child sexual trafficking well this is the same way it's just that we're going out into schools and we're, we're teaching them a skill but at the same time we're able to recognize if someone's really high risk and we can either refer them ourselves or get the the professionals that we're working with to refer them so it's like your stance is part of a bigger bigger chain of of events and organisations to help young people. I guess we're coming to the end now. You know, you won RCNS of the Year last year, 2020. And what has that done for the organisation and for yourself? Well, I'm incredibly grateful to have won the award. Uh, Obviously still a shock and I still feel really uncomfortable because if, if anyone knows me, I'm not someone who wants to go and be on a pedestal or anything but um, what it has done is that it's hopefully empowered other healthcare professionals to take an idea and try and go with it. I hope it's also inspired nurses to feel confident in being able to do things outside of their normal job description. The other thing is that 
you know, we've, we've got a lot more volunteers as a result of it. And we really hope to get other people to either do a similar project or to join our project or to franchise the model. And, you know, we have someone from Sheffield who's eager to expand there, eager to expand in the north of London and Leeds. And so I think that's great. And if we had it in every single emergency department, then I think one of my aims was to do something like that, then I, my job would be done. Is it going to go across the country? And it seems like it will, hopefully, if, if enough people get on board. Um, so that's that's a really positive uptake. And it, it's nice to hear that other people want to carry on the work. Is there anything else you want to add in terms of like your nursing and and working with young people and, and so on? I I guess the only thing is, is, you know, over the last few years, I don't know if everyone agrees with me, but I feel like serious youth violence has become, you know, a forefront of the topic of the NHS conversation. And I think that's really important. I think what we need to avoid is that it gets forgotten because of the pandemic. I think, you know, there's so many factors that put a young person at risk of this. And I think those factors are just going to be exacerbated more as a result of the pandemic. And I think as nurses, we have a responsibility to educate ourselves and to try and keep re-engaging ourselves in situations and so I think your stance volunteering for something like your stance is a way to do that because it it almost re-engages your compassion and I think you know it doesn't have to be violence reduction that you're interested in but I think just always as a nurse I would really encourage everyone to just keep trying to keep yourself involved or care in some way and that doesn't have to be in your hospital it can be you know other things that you can do outside well thank you for your time Anna I know that you've just come off night shifts as well so you must be tired it's been really interesting speaking to you and I'm sure our listeners will will gain so much from from listening to this episode um, and it's just nice to know that so- someone's out there trying to tackle these issues oh thank you thank you for having me <laughs> great thank you Anna And thank you very much for listening. Just a reminder that all the resources connected with this episode of the show can be found at rcni.com forward slash podcast, where you can also catch up on any episodes you may have missed or simply want to play back. And we greatly appreciate any feedback, so please do rate or review us on Apple or Spotify podcasts, which will also help other people to find us. I hope you enjoyed the show. (music) 